0: All right, today we are going to embark, officially embark, upon our study of the Gospel of John. Um, Last week, uh, we just uh, did a little introduction to John to get ourselves familiar with who John was and why John wrote this. And I just want to remind you of one aspect of last week's um, message, and that is the point of the purpose And if you turn to the end of the chapter, in John chapter 20, verse 31, we'll take a look at that just to start with here. John chapter 20, verse 31, we have one of the only purpose statements in the Gospels. John tells us why he wrote these things. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So here we have uh, John clearly telling us why he has written uh, this, this gospel, this book. And it's interesting. If you look at the verse prior to that verse 30, he says this, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book so if you remember last week, we talked about this purpose. John has written this really for a twofold purpose. One, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. He wants to present Christ in such a way and to give you such facts that will lead you to belief. That's apologetics, right? That is giving you evidence that you might, that might lead to a belief. And John tells us in that verse prior to that, that Jesus did many other signs, So John is going to use the signs, the miracles of Jesus, to present Jesus to people to elicit belief in Jesus as the Son of God. And John could could pick many signs because Jesus has done many things. But as you will see, John will pick seven. (laughs) He's going to focus on just seven signs. In fact, if you look at the very, very end of this whole book in chapter 21, verse 25... He tells us this, there, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John tells us there's so much that Jesus did. I, I mean, I couldn't even begin to write it. The whole world couldn't take all the writings because he's done so much. So John said, I'm just going to pick seven things. He's going to present Jesus to us uh, in a way that will elicit belief in Christ as the Son of God. That's apologetic. But the second half of his mission statement there, his purpose statement, is that believing you may have life in his name. And that's the evangelistic, right? That by believing you may have life in his name. Now I want you to think about that word, life. John has written this to human beings, I presume, who we would all say have life, right? You'd have to be a living being to be able to read these words. And that's interesting, isn't it? But John says, I'm going to present Jesus to you so that by believing you may have life. That's one of the themes that John is going to pick up here in the first chapter. These opening verses, and I'll have you turn there. John chapter one, we're going to look at verses one through five. These opening verses should be considered John's prologue. It is his introduction to his gospel. And in it, he introduces these themes that he is going to develop in the rest of the book. Themes like, I just pointed out, life, light, darkness, those kinds of things I would just take note of as we go through the prologue because he will use those throughout. But this approach that John takes is somewhat unique. If you think about the other gospels and how they start their gospels, well, think about uh, Mark, his approach is quite different. In fact, he wins the award for brevity. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God says that that's, that's Mark's beginning, right? Just straight to the point. That's his introduction in Matthew and Luke both preface their account of Jesus's ministry with a genealogy, right? And then a, a birth narrative. We get to find out who Jesus came from his bloodline And then how he was born. And Luke adds a preface to his work. He says, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account. Uh, So Luke says, listen, I kind of have all the facts. I have all those things. I've put them in an understandable order. And I want to lay these things out. Great. John goes a completely different direction. John does not give us a genealogy. John gives us no birth narrative. He gives us no information on Jesus' upbringing or early days at all. Instead, John takes us back, way back to eternity past. That's where John takes us. The reason John takes us, the readers, is similar to the reason the writer of Job takes you as readers to the throne room of God familiar with the book of Job, right? When you go to the throne room of God in the beginning chapter of the book of Job, you as a reader learn something that the characters in the story don't know, right? You have been informed that everything Job is going to go through is is actually due to the fact that God has given permission to Satan to afflict Job. And you know that, but Job's friends don't know that. Job's wife doesn't know that. His family They had passed away, but they didn't know that. And Job doesn't know that. That's omniscience, right? The readers have an understanding about something the characters in the story don't. John does the same thing here. It's pretty fascinating. You, by reading these first five verses, know something about Jesus that the Pharisees don't know, that Jesus' family doesn't know, and that Jesus' only disciples don't know. They don't know what we're about to learn about Jesus. It's pretty fascinating here. So as in the case of Job, this helps us, the readers, to to view the actions of the characters in light of what we have learned, of what message or information we have received. And this is a very strategic device that John uses to lead his readers to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let's take a trip back in time before time itself. And let's meet Jesus. John chapter one, verses one through five. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made in him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. God, to thank you for your word, and we thank you for the opportunity to study it this morning. We're going to look at some deep, hard-to-understand truths. Our minds don't understand eternity. We don't understand things before time, but you do. And John understood why he was writing this. So God, I just pray for your guidance today. We need your spirit to illuminate truth to us, God. Would you do that? We desire to see Jesus here. So be with us, guide us into your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look at verse one. In the beginning... In the beginning, I I love I love this this start. Uh, there's a lot of ways that John could have started this. Um, I, I think of um, I don't know, long time ago. In a galaxy far far away. That could have been good. Actually, it wouldn't work because here's what John does. He says, "In the beginning, the beginning, beginning." At first, it sounds like he is sort of going to retell the Genesis account, right? He's going back to Genesis one. In the beginning, God created. That's what it seems like he's doing. But it soon becomes apparent that John is not retelling a past event, but he is announcing that something even more important than creation took place. This is meant to get your attention. In the very beginning. And this is what we learn. Three things, and we're going to look at these three things here. He tells us at the beginning was the word. This word existed in the very beginning, right? That's number one. That's the first thing he tells us. Secondly, he tells us in that verse that the word was with God. This word had fellowship with God. And the third thing he tells us there is that the word was God. Okay. Those three things. So let's look at those three points that John makes and see if we can't unpack them uh, a a bit. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now, why does John use the word? Now, I I, I looked at all this and I struggled a little bit because you can get really technical in in some of this. And then I know those people like, get to the technical stuff. I I have put some of the technical stuff in here, partly because we got to know it. We have to understand what John is doing here, but I don't want us to get too bogged down in it. But here, here, here's the deal. The word is the word logos, okay? The word logos. Now, John knows something here. His audience, he's got Jews, he's got Greeks, right? The word is a significant word for both Greeks and uh, Jews. For us today, as we open this, I, and you know, I, I recommended the John Gospel tract. I put more of them out there, by the way, because I know some, some disappear. I put more, so they're there. Oh, they're right there. They're in the front. Because it's used widely today because it's an evangelistic gospel. Uh, but my son pointed out, even in his um, uh, uh, Bible college, you know, uh, one of the pa- uh, teachers there was saying it's a hard it's a hard one to get people to understand. He he prefers to take people to Mark, because they open the first part and they go, "In the beginning was the word, and this word was this guy." Whoa, 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 Wait, what is this word? Right, they get lost. Word doesn't have the same deep meaning uh, for us uh, that it does for the Greeks and the Jews. You have to remember his audience. For the Greeks, particularly the Stoic philosophers. Logos was reason. Reason was everything to the Greeks. And it was an impersonal, rational uh, principle. It governed the entire universe. In fact, they believed it it pervaded the entire universe. And so it was a creative uh, force, but also the source of wisdom. And and, And John is presenting Jesus as the uh, personification of this logos, like the embodiment of uh, the logos, um, the Jews, the word of the Lord was significant, uh, in the old Testament as well. Wasn't it? The word of the Lord was an expression of divine power and divine wisdom in Psalm 33 verse six. We have a great example of his power here by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by his mouth, right? So here you have everything being made by the word of the Lord, expression of his divine power. I want to take you to Proverbs chapter eight to give you an example of divine wisdom being personified. Proverbs chapter eight, this one is, is fascinating here. Verses uh, 22 to 31, Proverbs eight, to 31. Now we're starting in the middle on kind of on purpose here uh, because right away, you, you see that there's somebody here, but we're not sure who it is. Chapter 8, verses 22 to 31. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Oh, here we have a beginning again. Before his works of old, I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. So here's something that the Lord possessed, possessed that was with him in the beginning before creation. When there were no depths, verse 24, I was brought forth when there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, Then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world. And my delight was with the sons of men. Very interesting. And you go, what is he talking about here? Well, if you go to the beginning of chapter eight, you find out wisdom, wisdom. This is an expression of God's divine wisdom as well. And the Jews really caught this picture. But perhaps the best example, if you're still on Proverbs, just make a right-hand turn, a short one, to Isaiah, chapter 55. Just a few chapters to the right. Chapter 55, Isaiah 55. Listen to this, starting in verse 9. Verses 9 through 11, Isaiah 55. For as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. Now that is a, 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 uh, probably the perfect example there of the personified word that John is, is giving us here. This word is just like rain that comes down from heaven or snow and waters the earth and brings forth the seed so that we may eat. And he says, this word that goes out of my mouth will accomplish whatever I want to accomplish. It will accomplish that purpose and it always does so without fail. And then it returns to God after accomplishing it. Well, who did that? Jesus, but to the Jews, John is trying to present uh, something that they already understood to a certain level. He wants to present Jesus as the divine uh, word, the divine word, and this carries the picture here. Um, I guess in some way, uh, in some area, in a way that they would understand. Greeks understood um, this this reason even to the point where they looked at it as if it were God, a God equal to Zeus. The Jews certainly looked at the word as God's expression of power and wisdom. And so he's trying to reach both. He wants to evangelize both. And so he's, he's going to use this, this word to kind of grab their attention. But then he takes the, his argument a step further. Go back to verse 1 of John. He doesn't just say that the word in the beginning was uh, the word, But then he goes on to say that the word was with God. The word was with God. The Greek is pros, tone, theos. And this carries the picture of fellowship. Fellowship. The Greek phrase could literally be rendered face to face. In fact, if you look at verse two, he says this. He was in the beginning with God. So this word has always been in relationship to the father always in the beginning before creation. Christ did not come into existence at some point and begin relationship with the father. That didn't begin when Jesus came to earth as a baby it began in eternity past before anything has been made. And both the father, God and the son, the word have enjoyed loving communion with one another And that's what makes the incarnation, or Jesus coming to earth and taking on flesh, so amazing. In Philippians chapter 2, I have the verse for you here. This means so much more now, understanding this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what mind? Paul is trying to get Christians to have a spirit of humility, that of Christ. And so he's going to use the example of Christ and his example of humility here. Verse six, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So here Paul tells us that that Jesus had perfect fellowship with God. Right, But his example of humility was such that he didn't stay in fellowship with God. He was willing to leave that place, take on the humble form of a bondservant, a man, and even um, take that all the way to his death, the death on a cross. So Jesus left the glory of heaven, fellowship with the Father, to have hatred with men, and death with criminals. That's quite a contrast, isn't it? So Paul uses that example uh, just to show us this is the spirit of humility that Jesus has. But John is showing us here that, that Jesus indeed existed before all of these things. And both the Father and the Son are God, yet there are not two gods. And we see that as John makes his third argument. Look at the third one. And the word was God. So it flows this way, in the beginning was the word, so this word existed before time began, wasn't created, and the word was with God, had fellowship with God, and the word was God. Now John has been very careful in his approach here, you have to see what he's been doing, because to the Greeks in particular, John did not want to personify the logos, the word, only, because for them, um, I told you, that was as much a God as Zeus, So if he were to personify the logos and say, well, this is this, they would say, oh, that's just the same. There's no distinction there. But instead, John first said that the logos was with God. Does That make sense? He's with God first, and then he hit with the was God. And that would have been a new and foreign concept for the Greeks. And this phrase, and I want you to hit this, this is why I'm going to take a little bit of time on this, is one of the clearest declarations of deity in all of Scripture Yet, yet, many heretical groups twist it, change it to fit their false doctrines. And it's remarkable. It's one of the clearest ways um, that we see this declaration being made. I'm going to give you the Greek construction. "This theos in logos," Literally, God was the word. And it's clear by this construction that word, and let's get a little technical here, has the definite article of The, right? You can see it. In the beginning was the word. And because it's the word, it is the subject of the sentence. (laughs) God is a predicate nominative, and it describes the nature of the word. John's point is that Jesus is the same essence of the Father. It's describing the word. It's describing the word. But I'm going to give you an example here. Jehovah Witnesses and others translate this passage differently now this is a jehovah witness bible new world translation so if you see a bible somewhere you're like oh bible but it says new world translation it's a jehovah witness bible so but i want to show you something even in their uh the bible and you can come up and look at it in afterwards so if you look to john 1 1 here they translate it this way in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was a god a god they translate it a God. Now, the term God is definite, and it refers to the true God, and that's obvious for three reasons. I'm just going to hit these three reasons, and we'll get out of here. <laughs> Theos, God, appears without the definite article four other times right here in this prologue, right in the immediate context. And I want to show it to you because even in Jehovah Witnesses' Bible, they don't change it. Here they change it in verse 1. They put a God. But go and look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God. So what would you expect them to put here? There was a man sent from a God. Guess what they put? There was, came to a man who was sent as a representative of God. They don't put it there. They don't put it there. Look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 12 here. However, to all who did receive him, he gave the authority to become God's children. Not a God's children. Look at verse 13. He who, uh, sorry, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And they were born not from blood, or from fleshly will, or from man's will, but from God in their own Bible. Also, one more time in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. No man has seen God at any time. The reason is they don't change it in all those because they have a bigger problem at their hands, right? They do believe in God. And all those clearly refer to Theos, God. But they can't have Jesus be that God because they don't believe in the Trinity and they believe that Jesus is a created being. And more so, they believe that Jesus is Michael the archangel. And let me just say, this is all I'm going to say about them. I'm not trying to pick on them. But when you read the Bible cover to cover, they don't believe that because they read the Bible to cover to cover. You don't read the Bible and walk away going, yep, yeah, that's what I thought. Jesus is Michael the archangel. I, you would have to, you would do have to, I, I don't, Even no. How do you get that? Someone has to spoon feed you that. And they're spoon fed. They don't know what John is really trying to say. John is trying to avoid this confusion at all costs. He's making it unmistakably clear. Secondly, if John's meaning was that the word was simply divine or a God like the Jehovah Witnesses makes, he could have phrased it in other ways to make it clear. clear that that's what he's trying to talk about. Um, if you want to say simply divine, he could have used the word theos, which is what Peter uses in Second Peter 1, 4. I have it right here. He says, by which we have been given, been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Now, Peter uses that word there to say you, us, we're partakers of the divine nature. Are we God? No. Are we a God? No. But are we partakers of the divine nature of God? Yes, we just looked at the verse. We have the righteousness of Christ. So if that is what John wanted to communicate, that Jesus, this word, is just sort of a divine nature, he could have used that word. He didn't. He did not use that word. Secondly, if you wanted to say that the word was a God, like the Jehovah Witnesses and others, they're not the only ones, um, change. he could have been logos and theos. Theos in Hologos. He could have switched those around. But to make the point that John is making, Jesus is God, and there's no other way to say it in the Greek. There's no way to say what John said in the Greek. Word, then, is a Christological title. It is a title for Jesus. And it's used only here in verse in verse 1 and down in verse 14, if you look at that. And the word became flesh that's the incarnation that's when the word became a man makes sense i didn't lose anybody the rest of the gospel john is not going to use the word he uses it just here to grab their attention does that make sense he's he's got the audience in mind he's grabbing them the rest of the time you're gonna see son of god son of man uh the son simply or messiah let's move on to verse three and all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made So Jesus Christ was already in existence when the heavens and the earth were created. Now, this is just further evidence, and I just like this. I kind of think these things are fun. Look at the word was in verse 1. We've we've seen a lot of "wases" In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Just the word was, I know. Most people just go into the whole word thing. Look at the word was. This word is an imperfect tense word. It's I, me, and it means to be, to exist. So just put the word to exist in there. In the beginning existed the word, and the word existed with God, and the word existed as God. Right? You could say it that way. It, it exists to be. That's the word that's used, and it's used three times there in verse one. And that word indicates he's continually existing before time began. Look at verse two. He was in the beginning with God. Same word. I me. So he all um, he existed in the beginning with God. You could say it that way. Look at verse. Three, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Do you see the wases there? Different word. Yavai yeah, mi, which just means to exist. All of a sudden, he uses ginomai. Guess what it means? To be made. <laughs> to be made. Why? All things were made, that's the ginomai, through him, and without him nothing was made. Ginomai, that was made. Ginomai. <laughs> so. He doesn't use the same word. Don't you think that if John wanted us to know that Jesus was created, he would use ginomai at the beginning, right? In the beginning, ginomai. He was created, but he doesn't. Why does he not do that? Here's the reason, you guys. Three times he uses it there because his point is this. He wanted to enforce the truth that he who was not made made everything else. That's the point. So John has been very careful in the words that he has used. You have to go way outside to try to change these things to mean something different. Look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. I got it up here on the screen for you because Jesus did indeed make everything. You might be going, wait, I thought God made everything. Ah. Wow. For by him Speaking of Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities, all things were created through him and for him. And now I know I just threw that verse up out of context, and I'm just going to go back um, uh, briefly uh, a verse before that because, well, actually two verses before that. says this, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. That's Jesus, right? in whom we have redemption through his blood. That's Jesus. The forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. And then the whole verse goes. We learn from that verse that Jesus created everything. And it's by him that all things were created. That's why he's the firstborn over creation. He is the preeminent one. He owns it. He made it. Jehovah's Witnesses will take you to that verse and say, Oh, look, see, he's born. That's not what firstborn means. You can go to any verse to see that that's true. I'll take you to another one. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Here's the amazing thing. In the Old Testament, you're reading these things that are an expression of God's divine power and divine wisdom all along. Those that's Jesus. that's Jesus. Jesus is, is God's, um, I guess, instrument of creation. I will say it that way. He made all the worlds through him. Let's go back to our passage, John chapter one. Let's look at verse four. And this is really the key. This is where we want to get to. In him was life and the life was the light of men. This is a natural progression here. If Jesus was with the father in the beginning and it was through him that all creation um, and life came into existence, then Jesus would have to be life itself. John uses the word for life, zoe, rather than bios, because he's speaking of spiritual life and not merely physical. But here, it means that Jesus has life in himself. Just make a right hand turn to John chapter five. Jesus actually says that very thing. John chapter 5, verse 26. John chapter 5, verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. That's the same idea. Jesus has life in himself. God has life in himself. Theologically, you guys, this refers to self-existence. No one created God. He's self-existent. No one created Jesus. He's self-existent. That's another expression of the deity of Christ is self-existence, right? There was a point when the universe did not exist, right? John took us there, but there was never a point when God has not existed. He is self-existence. And we see that in the Old Testament, don't we? I mean, that's the reason God introduced himself to Moses as I am the I am. I've always been. That's what he's saying. Jesus' is life and the spiritual and eternal life given by God is given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. That's what's, that's what's being said here. And remember last week, we looked at how often the word believe is used in this gospel. It's over 100 times. It's, in, it's practically in every chapter. Belief in the word who is life brings life. In him was life that's what he's saying. And the life was the light of men. The light is the manifestation of the life. You can't separate these. They're they're together. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 8 verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, "I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of what? Life." Do you see how it's connected there? Life and light are connected. Now, that's one of the themes that John is going to carry on uh, throughout this. Um, And it's an important theme to to grasp. And not just the light, but also the idea of darkness with it. So Jesus is life. He's self-existent. He's the one that is the giver of life, but not just life. The focus is now spiritual life. And that spiritual life is the light of men. This is an Old Testament theme as well. In Psalm 36, verse nine, it says this, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. You see that? It's connected, isn't it? In your light, we see light. That seems to make sense. If I see light, yes, that's not at the point, right? The point is he's the fountain of life and then he transfers to light. He's the source of all life and in the source of all life, we truly do have light. Look at 2 Corinthians, I'll give you a, a, a New Testament example, chapter 4, I have it up here on the screen for you, verses 3 to 6, this is a bigger section, but listen to the words of Paul, but even if our gospel, so the good good news, is veiled, meaning if it's sort of shrouded, it's sort of clouded, you can't quite get it all, it's veiled to those who are perishing, which is true, right? You can, you can give the good news to people, but if not ready to, ready to hear it, it's sort of veiled. Doesn't make sense, Right? Do you remember the time that it made sense? What's the phrase we use when things kind of click and make sense? The light went on, right? The light went on, and I get it. That's the idea here. It's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, Satan, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers so that that light can't penetrate for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. <laughs> An amazing way Paul puts that together. God commanded light to shine in the darkness. And it's shown in our hearts that we would have light to the knowledge of Christ. That that light would bring a relationship with Christ. And a relationship with Christ brings life. That's the whole theme that John is talking about, right? By believing, you may have life in his name. So you must believe in the one. That's the knowledge. You must know this Christ to have that life. And that's where we get here. In him was life. And life was the light of men. Look at verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. The word comprehend here, katalambano, means to lay hold of or to overcome. In fact, some of your translations might just have overcome there. Instead of comprehend, it's a better word. That's really the point that he's getting across because darkness is commonly used to de- denote death, right? Uh, sin, um, ignorance, separation from God—all those—all those things are sort of clumped in together with darkness. Every year at uh, Christmas Eve, we would have a Christmas Eve service. The church that uh, I came from, and it was a candlelight service, and we'd turn off all the lights in the sanctuary and we'd have one lone candle in the front row, and that one lone candle would light the next candle, and that would have two, and that next candle would light the next one, and we would be three, and then all the way, that would go all the way through the sanctuary. Guess what happened to the darkness? <laughs> Dispel the darkness, right? Darkness never dispels light. Darkness can never overcome light. Light always overcomes darkness, always. <laughs> And that's the picture that we have here. The light shines in the darkness. What's the darkness? This is the the world of sin, the sinful world that we live in, our sinful hearts, our blindedness. That's the darkness where, where, where men are. But the light breaks that darkness and brings understanding and relationship and ultimately life. That's the picture we're getting here. In 1 John 2.8, this is one of John's epistles, he says this again, A new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He says that because the gospel is going and spreading, right, the darkness is passing. Because the true light is shining. In Colossians 1.13, Paul says he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So the kingdom of darkness is is often referred to as this blind world that we dwell in before we see the light of Christ. Isaiah described the coming of salvation this way. Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Amazing. Upon them a light has shined i told you elements of this story before, but I had an opportunity to go to Ecuador um, and to be with the Waudani tribe of Indians who were the ones that murdered uh, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and Roger, U- Roger Udarian, those those missionaries, and there's a fourth, I forget his name, in the 50s. And um, and and later the, the, the widows and sisters went in there and led that tribe to Christ. Uh, years later, Um, Nate Saint's son, Stephen Saint, moved his family. He was married. He had his own kids. Moved his family into that tribe because they became believers and made relationship with the head tribesmen. His name was Minkaye. He came to our church in the States. I've I've met the man. Minkaye was the man who killed Steve Saint's father, who killed him. Steve Saint now calls him Papa, and his sons call him Grandpa. (laughs) It's one of the things that changed my life because I saw forgiveness and reconciliation played out in a way I could not— feasibly understand as a human. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. But I was sitting with one of the tribe and we were outside under a little thatched roof uh, area for picnicking and eating on these wooden tables. And how do you speak to someone like that who, you know, you don't know their language and they don't know yours. And I I just asked them. I said, so how did you, um, you know, come to to Jesus? I was doing some lame hand motion. I don't know what I was doing. How do you communicate in the most basic of ways to uh, communicate where you've come from right and 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 looking down at the tabletop uh, a shaft of light was beaming down through one of the uh, the palm branches there so it was just a a shaft of light amongst the dark table and all he did was this he walked his fingers down the dark part and then he did the other hand he walked up the light part i knew right away we used to walk in darkness now we walk in light. The most basic of ways, even for a a sort of primitive uh, man, they came from, you know, primitive ways um, to communicate. I came out of darkness. We were in darkness, but light has shined and our village is saved. They know the living Jesus. That is the Jesus that John presents here. He says that that light existed before there was light, before God said, let there be light. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. He made all things. This preexistent eternal word, Jesus, had perfect fellowship with the Father and is himself the very essence of the Father. He made everything. He's life and the giver of it. His life will be a light to men who dwell in darkness, and he will invade a dark domain. And the darkness will rise to defend but they will not overcome what John does here is he sets the backdrop for the whole rest of the story. He has told us it, but in a very condensed creative way. And now we have the whole rest of the story to see how does this. So as a reader, we have omniscience. Now we know something absolutely amazing. We're going to see people dwelling in darkness, We're going to see people oppressed by evil spirits. We're going to see uh, people have all kinds of maladies and things. And we know that the giver of life is coming into the world. Does this make sense? Right? And so as we're reading it as readers and seeing the hopeless state of individuals in the story, we can go, oh, my goodness, they're running into Jesus. They have no idea who they're talking to. This guy needs healing. They're talking to the one who can heal. This guy needs resurrecting. He's the giver of life. And it makes you as a reader excited. You're like, this is the only one, man. Are you excited? I'm excited. This is the gospel of John, and that's the Jesus Christ that he presents to you, the giver of life. So we get to go through it, and we get to see all the the, the people he's going to interact with but we know what he's going to bring them. And ultimately, he brings eternal life because his life goes and culminates at the cross and then with the resurrection. So I hope that stimulates your minds and gets you excited for the rest of the gospel. We have a a fun journey ahead of us. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word and literally the word. The word who was in the beginning who had perfect fellowship with you and who is God but who left that domain that we might not walk in darkness came to bring us light to illuminate truth and ultimately give us life. Jesus is why we know there uh, there is no salvation outside of you because no one else came to save us only you did and we love you. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you for the truth, and I just pray for your people now, Lord, as we embark upon this journey, as we take the next year or so going through the gospel of John, may we encounter the giver of life in new ways. May our relationship with you just grow and strengthen and blossom, and may we fall more and more in love with you every day. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.